It's the whole Zoom things. I, I, the more I do of it, the, the worse I get. No, I don't believe it. Yeah, yeah, actually. I had set, I'm were upstate and I set myself up where I've been setting up and the light has changed sure. and now it's like it's bouncing off the garage and it's like, okay. Well, this is only audio. This is only audio. Oh, really? <laughs> only audio. So, okay. Why did I put makeup on? <laughs> Why am I wearing pants? <laughs> you look wonderful. I, I'm on video and I'm not wearing pants. So you've got me beat. <laughs> Cocktails at Table 7, inside New York's Joe Allen. In May of 1965, Joe Allen began life as a cozy neighborhood bar and restaurant in New York City's Hell's Kitchen. Located just a few blocks from Broadway, Joe's quickly developed a highly loyal clientele of young performers, writers, and creative types. The food was great, the drinks were stiff, and the fabled flop wall celebrating Broadway's most notorious bombs gave the room an added touch of insider charm. Over the decades, Joe Allen grew into a New York institution, and on this podcast, we'll celebrate Joe's history with longtime regulars who know it best. We'll hear from actors, producers, writers, musicians, neighbors, and friends who will share with us just what makes Joe Allen the place to be. So here's to old friends, new friends, and cocktails at Table 7. This week, we had the great pleasure of chatting with the one and only Judy Kay. Yes. We did. <laughs> she gave us some amazing insight about what she's been up to during the pandemic. And uh, we, we covered a couple of things in her career very extensively and left enormous swaths of her incredibly distinguished career out of the mix. So we're going to fix that. So we're we're going to give you, yeah, we're going to give you a little bit of a crash course in the credits of Judy Kay before we go into the interview, because there's a few holes. Just a few. Just a few. But it was still like, like, listen, it was a great conversation. And she gave us a lot of great insights about especially Diana, which was the musical she was working on. And just to make it clear to everyone, Diana was a musical about is a musical about Princess Diana of Wales that was in previews, six previews, shut down because of COVID. But it is still going. Yes, shut down. But she gives us a little insight on how they're carrying on. So that that was really interesting to hear. We touched a little bit on her touring in Greece with, if you heard last week's episode, Mary Lou Henner and John Travolta. Jeff Conaway, Jerry Zachs, Michael Lembeck, and... I believe she mentioned that Richard Gere was on that tour uh, rehearsing so that he could go play Danny Zuko on, in the London opening. This is an amazing uh, uh, group of people. We did also talk about On the 20th Century, which was the show that was kind of her, her breakout show. And we talked about how she was the replacement, but we didn't mention who she was the replacement of. She was the understudy to Madeline Kahn. And a few months into the run, Madeline Kahn left the show and Judy took over the role of Lily Garland, and became a star. Yeah. She became one of the above the title stars. And actually, they I had heard somewhere else that they tried to lobby to get her to be eligible for a Tony nomination because Miss Khan left so early in the process. But it didn't happen. But she was, from that point forward, like if you watch clips from the Tonys that year, it's Judy doing the big opening number on the Tony Awards. She did it on the road, and it was a role that kind of changed her profile. What we heard about it was great, but it's good for people to know that there's this really kind of tumultuous backstory, which we love. I mean, who, who, who doesn't love a good behind the scenes tumultuous? <laughs> we had Betty on, for God's sake, you know? We love backstage tumult. <laughs> and lots of flop talk. You'll a hear, little flop talk. A little bit of flop talk. And then 
just to give you a little bit more idea of some of her other credits, if you don't know her, in 1988, she won the Tony for playing Carlotta in Phantom of the Opera as Best Featured we Actress. Her. Yeah. And 2013, she was won the Tony for Nice Work If You Can Get It. But then we didn't, you know, we didn't mention Ragtime, which is kind of a big deal. She played Emma Goldman in Ragtime through its entire run. We didn't mention that she was in a show called Mamma Mia that ran a while. She was in the original cast. No one knows that show. What are you talking about? Yeah, no. Original cast, nominated for a Tony. And then really interestingly, at least I think it's a role that she uh, has a great affection for. Not that she doesn't for her others, but this one especially. Her Tony-nominated performance for Best Actress in a play for Souvenir about the Best Worst Singer, Florence Foster Jenkins. Um, even though Judy sings in it, it was a straight play and she was nominated for Best Actress that year. So that's your crash course in the some of the big major accomplishments of Judy Kay that we just didn't get to because we were talking about other stuff. It was a really wonderful conversation and, and especially to talk to someone that's in the midst of of trying to get back to work during uh, this crazy time. And her, her producers who sound really um, uh, forward thinking and Best. thoughtful and they're they're brave, like they're taking some chances and they seem to be, it seems to be going well. It's so. exciting to hear. It's exciting yeah. to hear that their ways have been found to continue the process of creating a show, even when we cannot be in the same physical space. That's absolutely really exciting and, and felt, I think, I don't know what you guys felt, but I felt uplifting to me. Like yeah, me too. we're a year into this and it's been so devastating and that felt like an uplifting thing to hear to me it sounds like they were hard they've been hard at work trying to figure it out and keep everybody working and that's it's good to hear all right so cocktails at table seven with judy k here you go Given given the opportunity, I get pretty dirty. <laughs> oh, great! We love that. We encourage. We encourage yes, that. We love that. <laughs> okay. Now, nothing dirty for me ever happened in Orso. Sadly, I guess. <laughs> we started this whole podcast to capture dirty memories. Yeah. Woo! <laughs> uh, woof! Woof! That's my little guy barking. Stop! <laughs> Shush! My little guy. He heard the thing that he liked to hear. Dirty stuff. He's like dirty, dirty. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So our guest today is a two-time Tony Award-winning actress who made her Broadway debut in the original company of Greece, playing Betty Rizzo. In addition to her numerous New York credits, she has toured the country playing everyone from Nellie Forbush to Nellie Lovett. With a voice that effortlessly crosses genres, sharp comedic timing, and a singular way with a tuba, she has enthralled audiences for decades. But she's probably best known for her role as... Public defender Penny Roselle in the 1970s crime drama Kojak with Telly Savalas. <laughs> Please welcome to Cocktails at Table 7, Judy Kay. Hey. Hey. <laughs> Hi, guys. Hi. Hello. Welcome, Judy. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. With that, we are. We're sitting at Table 7, just, mm -hmm. you know, yes. chomping on things. Yeah. That's what we're trying to do. Recreate Table 7. That's great. That's great. Well, I don't want to be a downer. I want to be an upper. So how have you been during these times since the last time we saw you over at Orso? We know you've been a, a little busy. Trying to be. Yeah. Uh, well, yes, I was very lucky because uh, what happened on March 12th was that uh, Broadway shut down and I and my fellows over at Diana, we had just done six, six uh, previews and we shut down along with everybody else. That was really hard, but we 
We were very lucky. Our producers, resourceful, fabulous producers, found a way to keep it all going because the, the, the preview period is when everything gets shaken down and all that stuff that uh, the writers have hated up to now decide to rewrite. And by day, we are rehearsing. By night, we do the show that until the next iteration of changes come in and then we, <clears throat> we change it out for the next night uh, until we, you know, till it's frozen and we, we open. And we were able to do via Zoom, much as I've come to, well, love and hate Zoom. Uh, it's not great for what we used it for, but it was the best that was available at the moment. We rehearsed the show top to bottom, mostly the first act. They, they wanted to do a lot of work in the first act. Second act was great. So we did via Zoom. And as halting as it was in a month's time, they had rewritten that act. And then two months later, we all got a Another Zoom meeting was held, and we were told that we were shooting uh, Diana for Netflix. So in September, we all bubbled up and uh, rehearsed. And, you know, so that was, I'll go on about that later. But what it did was it, it gave us all something to live for in that yeah. beginning. You know, it was, there was, for me, it was, it was a great gift. The whole thing has been a great gift. I told Joe T. Pietro, he, is, he gave me the greatest gift that anybody as many wonderful roles as I've had, this one he actually wrote for me. So it was such a stupendous thing. And we'll be again. So that it's been a roller coaster, you know, it's like everybody else. Uh, maybe some people have had more downs and ups. I've had plenty of ups. Uh, I find a reason to get up every day and get at it. Although I have, I find that I've also sort of regressed in my eating and my sleeping and my, you know, during all the snowstorms, getting outside and trying to get some exercise. So now that the spring has sprung, I'm going to rectify that. But I've been okay. I guess the bottom line of the question was, how have you been? I've been so much better than some people that I, I almost feel ashamed. But I miss my work. You know, that's kind of what defines me, like all the every, everybody else in our business. That sounds fascinating, The trying to do previews via, via Zoom and do the work that you would normally do in previews, right, but right. doing it from home. Was that mostly... Did it benefit everybody in terms of the writers and you as a performer? Uh, mostly the writers because, you know, Zoom halts, it hiccups along the way. So when you get like 25 people or more on a Zoom call, it hiccups even more. So there were times when we were trying to put all our vocal parts together, for instance. We found we had to each go off in our little rooms. Mine was my laundry room and record my lines or things in, in group things. And then put all that together, plus our reading of the text, you know, the script part. They felt they got actually more, believe it or not, more accomplished that way, the writers did, uh, than if we had been doing it in an actual preview setting. Because in a preview setting, you only have so many hours in the day to rehearse the stuff, and then you got to put it up there. And you may not have be able to complete your wish list of changes that you want to make. So this was, in some ways a crazy gift for our for our uh, creators. So it became more like work sessions than really typical preview rehearsals. Oh, absolutely. Well, this was total work session. Yeah. Uh, we would read it down and they could hear. They didn't need to see it up on the stage. What they needed to do was hear it in the flow of the, of the material within the songs. And the songs were pretty well established. Although they wrote a new one, they wrote a new song and they reshuffled some stuff. I was astounded how well it worked for them. They were thrilled with it. And uh, then when we got up, in September, we actually got to rehearse. We had another month. We were for two weeks. We were the cast and the creatives were out in uh, 
a hotel in New Jersey that shall be left nameless. <laughs> and uh, we rehearsed all of the stuff, you know, that, you know, Ian was able to get chorus sound really tight and all that because we were also recording the album at the same time. So we were able to get that done in those two weeks. And then we came into town into another hotel where we were joined by our stage crew, our whole stage crew, and in another bubble of the front of house people, which was the whole film crew. And uh, the director and the choreographer stepped out into that bubble so they could watch what was going on. It was meticulous the way it was done. And then with nine cameras, they cleared all the seats out and put platforms into the house and shot that show, nine cameras. So it was like they did with Hamilton, only different because we we really shot it like a movie. We did it like a movie because we could, because there was nobody there to, sadly, to watch us, right? So um, they shot it. They're very happy with it. We're just waiting for Netflix to say, okay, let's let's put it on on the air. What was that like for you to to do it having only done, you know, some previews and this being like kind of a new version of, of the show, at least act one, you said is very different with no audience response at all. Um, it was, it was strange, but it was kind of wonderful because we got to work a little more on what we were doing, the relationships on the stage. We could distill it down a little bit uh, for camera, which helped us, helped me to find, to go deeper into the character. Mm. And I think, I hopefully will be able to take that with me when we are back on the stage, because I think it was really, was really, really helpful. I would feel like having this extended editing and now the rehearsal workshop process, there's a way in which you're going to bring a whole other level of lived in-ness to these parts and to these, this piece will have a lot of life to it. Oh yeah. Well, uh, the four principles and a a few of the uh, ensemble we had started with this process, this whole project, I mean, all the way, how many years ago? It's almost four summers ago up at Vassar, uh, New York's, uh, what is it, Theater and Film? That whole wonderful, wonderful uh, thing they have going up there. So we started with it there, and then we went out to La Jolla, to the La Jolla Playhouse, and we played it. So four of us, had we had lived with this material a long, a long time, and it was marvelous to see, first of all, how much they had right from the beginning. And then how it has evolved. And uh, within the, the, the confines of Zoom, I think, plus then going in and, and filming it, actually being with live human beings. Oh, my God, that was luxurious to be with uh, the fellow, you know, all our fellows. And that was, um, I, I cried deeply. I think we all shed more than a few tears when we all say goodbye from that. Because that was like we don't, we, we left each other and didn't know when we're going to see each other again. We just don't know. That and also, it seems like an unusual experience that's going to bring you closer together physically, obviously, because you're in a bubble, but also emotionally. And yeah. I think any cast that goes through that would be closer. It was all to the good, all to the good. And maybe when we get back together in the theater, and I pray that we'll have our full complement of people that they'll all still want to be in show business, uh, <laughs> come back together, uh, that it will it will make us even better at what we do and make our show better and deeper and truer and all that good stuff that we long for. And you are playing Queen Elizabeth. I am. Which is, is is there anything daunting about playing a living person, especially one of the most famous women on earth? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, I went around and around with it through the the course of all of the iterations. And uh, what I have found is that I'm not doing, I'm not doing an impersonation or impression. I'm not really even her. I am me 
I am me, as we always are actors. We have to remind ourselves of this. It's me playing that. Mm -hmm. I'm playing that story. I'm playing those realities that I am presented with in the script. And the rest of it informs, all of that informs what you're doing. But at the end of the day, it can only be me, you know, because I can't alter myself. And I think it works really, really well. I think we're telling the story very, very well. It's got a lot of humor, a lot of humor, this thing. It's got a point of view and it's got sardonic moments and very funny moments and kind of sassy moments, if I may say, <laughs> uh-huh. veering close to dirty. And then, uh, and then, and then at the end, it just breaks your heart, you know, the reality of it all. So I think it just runs a really wonderful spectrum of storytelling. Yeah. I, I would look forward to seeing, I would like to see it on stage and also hope to see it on Netflix as well. Yeah. Not to, not to come on, come on guys, get up, do it, put it out. We want to see it. I trust they haven't told you a date when that is going to happen. No, it was, it was roughly three weeks ago, four weeks ago. So I, I got an email with uh, some photographs from the shoot. Uh, that I happened to be in. So they asked me for my approval, which of course I would always give them. They were pretty. They were nice. Anyway, they were, they're for the end credits. So that means that they were still working on it. You know, it wasn't completely done. And then of course we remember that Netflix puts things out in how many languages? And I don't know what their time frame is that they have to have all of those dubbings done before they release it. I don't know. I don't know how they do. So I think there used to be a concern, like if something was was being shown in one media, that it would hurt its business in another media. Like if something became a film was made, that it would hurt the Broadway production or like with Chicago, when they made the film of Chicago, there was all this concern of like, oh, when we put this movie out, it's going to kill the show on Broadway. Right. And did it? It did not. Did it? I don't think it did. And what I was going to say is it could enormously raise the profile to have it on Netflix before Broadway reopens fully. I think that was the thought and that it was something that our producers could do not only to keep us involved and employed, God bless them, and have our insurances paid and all of that, but uh, our, our backers could also see some, some uh, loot out of this. You know, they, they put their money up and uh, then everything shuts down. And I don't know how many of these angels across Broadway have said, listen, we got to have our money back. And so things are in, in flux, but ours, ours at least have gotten and will continue to get the revenue from this. So that's, that rewards them for their loyalty and their, you know, it's, it's, it's important. It's important. It seems like they've smartly made the best out of a very challenging situation in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Absolutely. That and taking a big risk, you know, it hadn't been done before like this and let's see if it pays off. I hope it does. Yeah, I sure do too. I sure do too. Uh, and uh, I hope I don't age out before we find <laughs> steak. No, I think I've got, I'm, I'm all right. I, I, I'm fine. She's a grown-up, so I'm a grown-up. So. <laughs> that works out. <laughs> yeah. So we, we, um, we know that you're originally from Phoenix, Arizona. How did you get from Phoenix, Arizona to New York uh, in a nutshell? What, what do you want to tell us about that? Okay. Well, uh, I probably should have come to New York directly. But I had more friends and family in California. So I went off to UCLA where I was there on and off for five years. And after my freshman year, I well, I actually, during my freshman year at UCLA, I went to the store and bought a copy of uh, the Daily Variety. And then I, I decided to take it as, you know, a subscription. And I proclaimed that I was in show business at that point by doing that. And then I started going on auditions that I found. So I got a job. 
My first job was a chorus job, equity job. 1967 was a chorus job at a, a theater in uh, Anaheim that is now a church, actually became a church right after that season because we were the last stuff to play in that theater. Three shows in that season, the two-week stock, one-week stock, indoor stock, they called it at the time. And we were in the round. So I went from that to, I started going out on auditions whenever I saw them. And almost the next thing was the open call for your good man, Charlie Brown. And uh, I went to the open call and I got cast as Lucy Van Pelt in that thing. And I was in that for two years, a little over two years. And then I, and there I am in LA for some idiotic reason, going, kind of going to college sometimes, you know, and doing the odd show and thinking, sort of thinking, why am I here? But I was starting to get some television work too. So, so I stayed and then, uh, and then I started coming back East to just see what was going on. And I started going on on auditions, sleeping on people's couches. Soon enough, uh, New York sort of took over in my life. I did a bunch of road companies, a bunch of road companies. And then finally was cast. I had done the first national company of Greece in 1973. And we, you, you, I think you had Mary Lou Henner, right? Yes. Last yes. week. Okay. Well, that's where she and I met. We were roommates on the road. I'm sure she had some... I don't know what stories she told. They were all, she was so, <laughs> she had such good memories. She had such positive memories of it. It was a lot of well, fun. Well, yeah. And boy, does she have memories. She has memories. <laughs> they, they do not leave, do they? No. Yes. Yes. You now know that, don't you? She had the time, the place, the weather, you know, what we had for lunch. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, everything. Yeah. 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 Everything. Yeah. But that's in a remarkable group of people in that road company. It's sort of like out of control. Imagine that. Think about that group of people and how everybody, everybody went on to greater glory. And uh, we still sort of are touchstones for each other. And, and they're doing these zoom reunion things. I've only done one of them so far because I've had some responsibilities, but it's, it's really lovely to, to reconnect with these people. Yeah. This was a defining moment when all of us, Mary Lou was the younger and, and Johnny were the young ones. All the rest of us were basically 25 years old, turning 25 on that tour. So we were, you know, a quarter of a century old and uh, should have known better. But we, uh, we were. <laughs> hey, you were on the we road. Had, we had it's, a, a, yeah. it's a tour. That's, That's right. We had a lot of damn fun. We did. We did. We did. And we rehearsed in New York. And of course, uh, that's where that's when I first got my house account at Joe's, of course. I, I, it was a privilege. It was like, now it was one of those things. I would have these, these sort of marks in my life. The day I, I sent in my subscription for the daily variety, I told you that that was a, I'm in show business. And then the called my parents when I had worked enough to have an unemployment claim. <laughs> and I called my parents in Phoenix, Arizona. My father was a pediatrician. My mother was a housewife and a, a golfer and, you know, helped out here at the, the hospital. Okay. So I call them all excited to tell them that I finally had enough to collect unemployment. And my mother quietly went off to the John to cry. <laughs> she doesn't realize what an accomplishment that is. Yeah. No, no, they had no idea what I was talking about. I had to educate them over time about what show business really was. And by God, they, they did learn, but, uh, I was so proud of that first unemployment claim. And so in New York, there I am in New York in 72, 73, because we started going there while we were in rehearsal. And uh, I was uh, taking dance classes from Luigi from the time I was in 
LA, he would come out, we would do classes and I would go out to dinner with him at another restaurant on restaurant row, but which is not there anymore. John's place. Does anybody that's before all your time too, was all the way at the end of the block. No, Mary Lou went through a whole list of the places going from Broadway and then coming West. Wow. So she talked about Charlie's. She knew them all. Of course she did. And she said, Joe Allen would be kind of like near the end, I guess, because it's further west oh well i but i started going there right away i did i started going there right away because i knew about it and i wanted to be there yes we did go to charlie's we spent the night actually i wasn't with that company i was already in the broadway company the night in 1979 of the blackout that i spent at charlie's we closed that place down and and emptied their freezer so they wouldn't lose their stuff we got rip roaring and, <laughs> and ate all their food so um we paid, we paid. Um, oh boy, did we pay. Uh, so that was that experience. But with my, my two favorite things there, oddly enough, were the, the black bean soup and the tapioca pudding. You probably didn't know that there was tapioca pudding. Oh, oh I've not, not heard of uh, hide nor hair of this. Oh my God, it was good. And it was ice cold and had whipped cream on top. So that was, uh, I probably ate way too much of that. No, listen, we can't talk too much about this because that's in our closing. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. All right. Okay, okay. All right, all right. So then, yeah, I did, went into, that was the summer that the blackout happened. One of two blackouts I'd been involved on Broadway. The other was when I was doing Mamma Mia. We we had a blackout that summer too. We, we were there right with you, walking across bridges to get back. Yes. Yeah, Sean and I walked across the bridge to get back to Astoria. And then there was... You know, another one a couple of years ago. Were you were you in town for that one? But that was just like one night in 2019. That was the summer we had that one. Oh yeah. Oh, it was like half the city. I think I was lucky enough to miss that. (laughs) I do remember walking through Times Square to get home, and the east side of Times Square was all lit up, and the west side of Times Square was dark, and it was just a bizarre thing because it really only happened on half the. You know, it happened on the Broadway side. That's crazy. So can we talk a little about the on the 20th century? Because that was a big career kind of event for you. It turned into that. Yeah, it did. So so that was I mean, that was a um, a, a musical uh, with music by Cy Coleman and lyrics and a book by Comden and Green. And it was based on the hilarious Broadway comedy of the I believe it was in the 30s the 20th century. And this was a musical version. And I, I, and it was Harold Prince directing. So, I mean, it must've been an amazing opportunity to have that available. Wow. It was incredible. I had my relationship with him had started back in California when he first came West to, uh, they were going to do a road company of company and they needed, there was one person who was not coming out with the show. So a bunch of us wound up auditioning for April, the stewardess. And uh, I gave what I thought was as it turned out, a really lousy audition because none of us knew the show. It was brand new. Mm. It wasn't recorded yet. It was like, we didn't know, we didn't really know what it was. And none of us on the West Coast had seen it. So we were sort of taking uh, our best shot. But then when I was called in for 20th century, Al wants to see you. He says, there's really nothing for you in the show, but he really wants to see you again. So I said, great, well, I'll come on in. And thinking that there was really no job at the end of this rainbow, that I was right for because I knew Madeline was doing it. I just decided to go in and have a good time. And that's when I did Glitter and Be Gay. And uh, they handed me the script and I did the best cold read of my life because I had no, no stress. I knew this, just, this is just to say hello and that maybe someday there'll be a job for me. And by the time, as soon as I did it, I thought, 
I'm going to get a call on this. And I don't, it, it may be a job I really don't want. And by God, this, by the time I got back to my sublet, the phone was ringing and it was an offer to be the understudy. And I had been an understudy in college and it was an awful experience for me. I mean, I got to go on, but I got no rehearsal. I got no support. I just had to fly by the seat of my pants. And, and it worked out. I mean, I evidently did fine, but uh, it just wasn't real, really very much fun. So I, I, I got a call to understudy her and to play the small part of Agnes the Maid. And I turned it down. I mean, I, I'll say that I turned this job down three times. Really? Or two times, two times, and I was I was told, "Don't turn this down. You someday you're going to watch the Tonight Show. And there'll be the woman who took this job will be on there, and you'll kick yourself." <laughs> so the third time around, my agent was able to negotiate that if in six months I was miserable being an understudy, I could give my notice. And I thought, okay, all right, just to be in a Hal Prince show from the very beginning and see how they put these things together. And just be to be a fly on the wall, uh, I'll do this. And I mean, obviously, it was a good, <laughs> good decision. Yeah, uh, it, it changed my life completely. Uh, I mean, I'd had a really nice life, and I was working and making a, a little living—not much, but a little enough to live in California at the time. But it, it changed everything, you know. I can only imagine because that was a, a, a hot show at, at the time. It was a, it was loaded with really experienced Broadway names, John Cullum. Mm -hmm. And also you had Imogene Coca, who was oh, yeah. this beloved television comedian. And you did that on the road, correct? You went on the, the road I with did. that show. With I did. After Afterward, I, they asked me to go out with uh, Rock Hudson and Imogene. And so I did. And uh, became very, very close friends with, with Rock, which was a wonderful, a wonderful, the probably the best thing out of that particular experience. But we had a success. He was not treated so wonderfully and by the critics, but because this was not his truly his bailiwick. Mm -hmm. I've never worked with anybody who has worked harder and tried harder, but uh, maybe he tried too hard. I don't know. He probably, if he had relaxed a little bit, it might have been. Yeah, he need, he needed a little someone in his ear to say yes. It sounds like he was a really conscientious, like really. Oh, he was respectful of trying to do his best for. I it. just knocked things over here. Yes, <laughs> you can say that all again. He was very respectful. Yes. No, I'm just saying the idea of someone who's that famous for what they're famous for, wanting to do the best job they could do, even maybe knowing it wasn't the perfect casting, is good quality to have. Oh yeah, he yeah he wanted he wanted it so so badly. And uh, he was so supportive of all of the rest of the cast. He couldn't have been a better colleague. He put himself in very difficult situations to help me. I mean, he, he had decided he would never do talk shows. I think he had been burned at some point. And he was also a man living, you know, a, a, a kind of a lie, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't be out in that day and age. And he, everybody who knew him knew he was a gay man. He didn't make any, didn't kid around about that. It was he just was who he was, but he had been sort of tortured by the press on various occasions, and he didn't want to leave himself open to that. But in order to get me out there, he did the Mike Douglas show, you know, he did, which was a huge talk show, just so that I could get on there and perform. I mean, what a what a really lovely thing to do. And he was that way with everybody in the cast. And then Imogene, of course, was Imogene, who was one of the great ladies of of this business. Sweet, sweet, wonderful, brilliant person. I 
I'm curious what it was like for you. And it's written somewhere in some reviews that I think the New York Times said, you know, they declared you a star the minute you went on for that role. Was that exciting? Was it scary? Was it like, holy crap? Or was it like, yeah, I got this or a combo of all of that? Oh, probably a combo. But, you know, I I was really glad that I was 29 years old and not 21. I mean, I'd been in the business long enough and I had been. I've been, you know, I got my equity card in uh, 67. And this was now 78, 77s, you know, I mean, I knew how this business works and you can be a star one day. I, the day I took over, my picture was on the front page of God help me, the New York post. And it was huge. I mean, it was a great big shot of me. And uh, I thought, well, that's really interesting. But, you know, by the end of the day, I was on the floor of the subway. People were stepping on me. I knew that people were picking up their, their dog shit. With it, you know? I, mean, I knew that. That's, I mean, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the cycle, isn't it? So that stuff is all only as good as it helps you get your next job. Right. Right. The fact that you just said that it's a great transition for the next two shows we want to talk to you about because of the Joe Allen connection. And you were in two shows that are high profile in one season, 1981. You did the the Mooney Shapiro songbook and then Oh Brother. <laughs> we want to hear about that because I we did a little research. I, I listened to another interview. Both of these shows sounded like they were quite funny. They were wonderful shows. They did not deserve what they got. Yeah. And I'm interested to hear first of all about the songbook and then about Oh Brother, which was later in the same year and the experience of working on new musicals that just didn't, they didn't connect or they got hit by critics or whatever happened. Yeah. Well, the song, songbook, Mooney Shapiro songbook, as it was called in the United States, had first been done in Britain. And something that used to happen, uh, I would be awakened like at six o'clock in the morning by a phone call literally from Hal Prince. God bless him. He would be have flown back from London and had seen something. And he would say, this is a show for you. This is what you should do. He says, I'm not going to put it on, but you should do it. If it gets here, you should do it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so one of them was the show Songbook. It had been something of a, a success, underground success. I don't know how kind of a success it was in London, actually. But it, it, was, it was coming over. And, uh, and it really was right up my alley. Uh, there were five actors playing... How many characters were there over a hundred characters in this thing? I, I had the least amount of costume changes and I had 35. Holy mackerel. Oh my gosh. Wow. Some of them were all the way, you know, down to the skin. And some of them were just a little bits and pieces, but it was, we were telling the story of a songwriter named Mooney Shapiro, who was from Ireland and had escaped Ireland because he had knocked up a girl and he got on a boat and he came to America And he was found basically starving on the Lower East Side by Mrs. Shapiro, who took him in and adopted him. And he was a songwriter. The show was a book show written in the form of a, and then I wrote review, like uh, Side by Side by Sondheim. And that was, there were all these shows like that at the time. So it's a review of an imaginary composer. Yes, yes. And And his life and times. And by virtue of that, it illuminates the history of the world throughout that period, including Nazism and, you know, everything else. But with with a dark sort of comical eye, not sort of, it was comical. It was very funny. And uh, Jeff Goldblum and Timmy Jerome and Annie McGreevy and Gary Beach and I played all the characters. It was swell. It was kind of weird to look at because it wasn't real flashy. 
it was designed by the Lees who did Sweeney Todd. So it had kind of an edginess about it visually, but it, it rocked. It was really, it was a great show. And uh, we opened and we closed and it was heartbreaking, heartbreaking. We should have, we should have had a run. How should it was, was right. But you know, the, the, the theater was scheduled to be demolished and I think they just want to get on with it. Okay. The Morosco theater. You were the last people to play that. Yeah. I got to talk to Wikipedia because they have the wrong show as the final. They say that <laughs> Billy Bishop goes to war. Oh, yeah. Billy Bishop goes to war. It was not the, you guys were the last show. We were. I have I have a, an armrest from the theater that was given to me. Oh, cool. Where was the Morosco? The Morosco was on uh, 45th Street. Three theaters were demolished in order to make the... Uh, the Marriott Marquis. Oh, oh, yeah. The whole the hotel and the and we were on the 45th Street side, and there were other theaters on the 46th Street side. We and then we had a little. There was another small theater next to us, next to the Morasco, where things like uh, well, Mum and Chance played. I saw Mum and Chance there. You know, it was it was a disaster. It was terrible that that happened because Morasco was a great theater, great theater. Look it up and you'll see all the wonderful things that played there. And then, so the same in the same year, then you did Oh Brother, which was the translation of Shakespeare's The Comedy of Errors to the Middle East. Right, right. We read that was like 13 previews and three official performances. Yeah, we had played a run of it down at the Kennedy Center. Now, what happened was, so it's it's The Comedy of Errors set in a country not unlike Iran, going through a revolution. I played the daughter of the Ayatollah. The older daughter, the younger daughter, was Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio. And Alison Reed played Fatata Tatatima, <laughs> who was a belly dancer. And the, uh, uh, the courtier, the, the, what do you call it? The, not courtier, the, uh, a whore. She was a whore. You know, it's the two brothers separated at birth. And one of them was Harry Groner and the other was uh, David Carroll. David Carroll played my husband and, you know, hilarity ensues. But I'm the daughter of an Ayatollah and he has forbidden at that point, and this had just happened, women to be wearing regular clothes. They had to put on the entire chador, top to bottom. So I spent the show in a burqa, total burqa. And every now and then I would fling it off to show off what I was wearing underneath when sometimes it was the bathing suit. Sometimes it was, you know, my Calvin Klein jeans. This is the stuff that was all very popular. But he did, they, the women weren't going to be allowed to show themselves in their regular Western clothes, right? Which is the shit's still going on now. So there you are. Yeah. Was there a con? I mean, was there, were people offended by it? Not at I mean, all. It sounds like it was meant to be comical. It was just it was, because. It was the like the funny thing happened on the way to the forum. It had, it was a, it was a burlesque really. And it was funny wildly funny and there's a recording of it if you ever want to hear it it's a great score what style was the music well it was big showbiz kind of songs mm -hmm. i had a big 11 o'clock number um michael valenti wrote wrote the music brilliant michael valenti i had a lot of songs but one of them was i come up to my husband who i think is my husband and it's really his twin brother because you know, we got the two sets of twins and i'm singing to him how do you want me, short or tall, against my will, against the wall? <laughs> why won't you tell me, simply let me know, oh, why these, oh, why these, uh, 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 Daisy? Uh, how can I be what you obsess if what you want you won't express? How do you want me, pale or pink, upon the hour, up on the sink? <laughs> Just say, <laughs> I'll make your, your fantasy come real. How do you want me, short or tall? 
that and then when I'm a total failure I'm looking for my my philandering husband and I'm gonna cut his stuff off and uh, instead I break into song and the whole place turns into Caesar's palace really uh, and my scimitar turns into a, a microphone and we sing what do I tell people this time my stories are sounding the same it's a, like a big Frank Sinatra, huge number. Oh, it sounds really clever. It was wildly funny. It was so clever. It was so delightful. And we had this great cast, you know, all the way through, through and through and through. We should have had a good run out of it. We should have had that. But uh, that was the critics. Because the day we opened at the Kennedy Center for our out-of-town tryout was the day that Anwar Sadat was assassinated. And yours was a Middle Eastern set. Comedy. Yeah, yeah. We had dunes on the stage. People coming across with their boom boxes, you know. It, it was the Middle East. In fact, our poster, it should have been up at, at, at Joe's. I don't know why it wasn't, but it was it was a fabulous poster. It's a camel on a on a skateboard going through the dunes, a pair of high tops, sunglasses, and a burnoose. And underneath, it says, musical comedy breaks out in the Middle East. <laughs> it's one of the best posters of all time. Yeah, we could get that. Most of the ones that are on the wall are usually donated to, or given to us by the promoter. Yeah, I didn't. I only had one. I didn't want to give mine up. This also sounds perfectly of the early 80s, too. The design and all the stuff that's in there with the boom boxes. And- oh, it's fantastic. The, and, the you know, the... <sighs> There was a, a, a song about, uh, and this one really pissed off one of the critics, who, by the way, was observed laughing his ass off at all of this, was uh, Bangle-laden OPEC maiden. <laughs> <laughs> I had to find that, the sheet music for that. You can so, find it. Dana, you got to do that one. I know. I, I, I think the first one you sang, I need to add to my rep book. I might, I might need to call you for that sheet music. <laughs> Bangle-laden OPEC mate. Well, you, you can probably get it. Now, Go. you should go to YouTube. I'm sure that show and shots from it. I know that we did an album of it. The album exists, and it's really good. I mean, some beautiful and wildly funny music on the damn thing. Very clever. And uh, yeah, we we should have had a I feel like both these shows should have been done in rap. (laughs) They both sound like they would complement each other. (laughs) In some ways, yes. Very different cast requirements, but yes. Do you ever take any of this stuff? I haven't ever seen any of your your club acts, but have you ever pulled any of these from these shows? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you actually, we have a, a friend in common, Mr. Dennis Buck. Oh, ask him. He's got it all. He and I worked on a couple of shows together. I know he's he's your guy. Like, 
I love him. He's terrific. He worked on Oh Brother. He worked on Oh Brother. I didn't know that. Yes, he was a rehearsal pianist for the show. And he he knows it uh, stem to stern. He knows the whole damn thing. Oh, of course he does. He probably has it all memorized in the back of his head. <laughs> probably so. He's quite something. Yes, he was there. He was there. He knows it. So what else do you want to know? Okay, well, we have to ask you. Yeah, we- we've only gotten to 1981. I know. I don't want to I don't want to not talk about your way with a tuba. I we could not get over reading your reviews about Mrs. Lovett and them talking about your way with the tuba. What what did you do with that tuba? I got to know. Well, you know, Patty Lapone had played tuba right. in a marching band for a joke when in high school. I mean, she played it long enough to have some agility, some experience with it. I had never played any kind of a horn. Well, no, that's not true. I did a little bit of Mazeppa when I did side by side by Sondheim. So I could kind of get a squeeze out a note or two on the trumpet. But the tuba was new to me and they asked me what I wanted to play. And I didn't play anything with any great facility uh, and nothing that was going to, you know, and let's go for the humor. The humor is me playing the tuba badly, trying to play it well, not copying to the fact that it sucks. But I, I mean, I learned a few notes. I, by the time I was done with the tour, I was able to play a little bit. Um, but the thing with that show for me, I mean, I had done Mrs. Lovett in lots of different productions. Uh, I'd done the full big blown production. First time I did it was out in um, actually in Michigan. And then I did it in Jersey and I did it all over the place. But to do that production where we had to play the instruments scared the living crap out of me. Yeah. Because... The one thing I fear is hurting someone else's performance by my crap playing of an instrument. And the only time I've ever been truly, truly nervous was the first night I went on for Patty on Broadway. I'm standing up there with the triangle and the stick here. And I'm thinking, how can I get off this stage? Is there a way for me to escape? (laughs) And then realizing that there isn't and I just have to tough this thing out and knowing that everybody else had been doing the show long enough that they would make it work. So I just had to play the character, which I knew, which I had facility for and love, 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 love playing that thing. So my tuba playing was the least of it. But yes, I did. I, I was able to yeah, squeeze out a few notes on that tuba and did it uh, for basically a year because I toured with it. Oh, what a great role. Yeah. The piece itself, however you do it, is, is a masterwork. He's got a bunch, you know, Mr. Sonam has a bunch of masterworks, but this one for me is, it just rips my heart out and stomps all over it. You know, it's, it's brilliant. It's just brilliant. Do you like going out on tour? It seems like you do because you've done quite a bit. I did. I did, but I'm not going to do it anymore. I've, you've said it here. Uh, I think that tour cured me. I'm too old. I'm too old for it. It's a, it's a, it's a young person's activity. Because, you know, it, it's not the it's not the playing the show. That's the easy part. It's the for a month we did one weekers when we travel on our day off. So I never had any rest on that tour. And and then, you know, they they would move the, the cast as, as cheaply as possible. And the, the stop between Florida and Kansas City, they took us through uh, Houston where we had a layover. And because there were wind problems, we never got off the ground. I didn't get into my hotel room till 11 o'clock that night. When I got to the hotel, they'd given my room away. And the room they gave me, I couldn't even open my suitcase. It was so small. Gosh. So, you know, that's the kind of thing that kills me. The charm is not there so much anymore at a certain No, no. And I'm too old to be lifting suitcases again. I can't, you know. I am now at the point where uh, the wages of 
physical comedy have caught up to me and my body is just breaking. I've got a new knee, my back is stenosis and I'm getting, you know, epidurals. And if I were on the road, that would even be worse. I couldn't do it. I can't do it. Oh, we talked to Jeff Weddy not too long ago. And um, oh, Jeff, he sends his love. Well, he can tell you that he can tell you why Tales of the City never was able to get to New York. So he has his own thing about that. And he knows better than I do. I just wish it would happen. Not necessarily with me anymore, because I think that would just not work anymore for me to play a transgender person. Uh, I mean, I can do it. And I loved doing it with all my heart. But there are transgender people probably who could do it. That's very interesting. I never thought about that, but yeah, you were playing a transgender role in that. That was at ACT and it was a musical adaptation of Armistead Maupin's Tales of the City. And I I had known, I had heard in another interview, you talking about how you really loved playing her and the the show was a lovely show. And he said, he doesn't know when or if, but he would love to see it go on. Oh, it should. Uh, There was this funny story that was, you know, this thing that they were all worried about was that, that New York doesn't like San Francisco. Hmm. everybody in San Francisco says New York doesn't like us. So any show that's about San Francisco, they're not going to like. Well, I just think that's crazy. As my husband says, the thing about New York is that New York doesn't care. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. New York, we don't make we don't make value judgments as far as New York is concerned. That's the only city in the world. But if you want to tell a story in Des Moines, there's no problem with that. New Yorkers aren't going to go after. Oh, I think there was one critic one time who is not even criticized. He's not even writing that stuff anymore. And he made some kind of offhand comment about San Francisco. And ever since then, everybody in the theater in San Francisco thinks, oh, New York hates us. We can't ever take anything to New York. So that's that's not true. Well, the clips that we have seen, the music is just it's beautiful. Isn't it? Yeah. And I think Jeff Whitty promised me a, a cast recording that mm, sort of, did. yeah, but I, I have yet to get it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because we, well, we never went into the studio to do it. They did do a benefit reading of the show. I was working out of town and I was unable to be involved, but I told it was just wonderful and people loved it and cried. And, I mean, it's, you know, it's beautiful and emotional and funny and human and it, it's a great story and uh and army is just what a writer my god the thing he created is just spectacular is there a type of role that you gravitate towards because you can do a big and broad and funny and you can also do something that's a little you know more touching and human like that is there is there something that gets you or that grabs you right away well i like i like to play characters that change Okay, they learn something and they change. They go from one place to to another place, and I think that it's interesting and uh, it's interesting for me to play, and I think it's more interesting for an audience. But or it's probably a selfish thing. It's probably more interesting for me than it is for the audience. But I like that, whether it's broad or subtle comedy or whether it's drama. Uh, I have to say, kind of falling out of bed, I have a, a comic thing, you know, that I understand comedy from a, a, a cellular level, you know, there's a musicality and a, um, you know, a rhythm to comedy that just speaks to me. I think at my essence, I'm a vaudevillian. I set them up and I, by the way, either side of it, I love setting up the joke and I love knocking it down, but uh, I just want a good story. I want a good tale, a good yarn to tell. That's all. That's all any of us want. Do the vocals play, uh, vocals play into that for you too? Like, I mean, your range is incredible and you know, it was, (laughs) I don't think it is anymore, (laughs) but I mean, like, 
you can sing, can sing anything. I mean, from the mezzo to Carlotta to on the 20th century, I mean, all of that stuff. Did that, you know, building on what Jason asked, did that play into it too? Or was it more, that was great that you had that, that skill? Well, that was, I had, I was great that I had that skill. I, I had that in my toolkit you know, in my bag there, but that didn't matter. I mean, if I had, it'd be nice to have something really meaty to sing. I, I'm a storyteller. I think most actors will tell you that. I want just good, juicy stuff, a story to tell and a great way to tell it. If it's singing it, wonderful. If it's, I mean, it certainly was over the years. If not, if it's just speaking it, that's great. I, um, the Queen has some, well, one incredible song, one really incredible song. In the old days, they would have called this the 11 o'clock number, and it's hers. And it was the first song that they wrote, actually. They, they wrote this song for the Queen to find out if they could write a song for the Queen. And they thought if they could write a song for the Queen, and it wasn't embarrassing, and it was a good song, then they could write the show. That's a good test. And uh, Joe and David, Joe and David did this, and uh, it's my privilege and great joy to sing it. It's pretty demanding. It's a demanding song. It thrills me to be able to sing it, and the audience seems to uh, react very well to it. So it's exciting. It's very exciting. Hope I get to, well, I know. I'm not going to hope. I'm going to be singing it again live eight times a week, damn it. Well, we can't wait to see it. I think I can speak. Absolutely. I can speak for the three of us with that. We'll be there. <laughs> we'll be there, and then afterwards, you'll come see us. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Will I? And have an actual cocktail on table seven. To celebrate. Will I ever? <laughs> I want to mention your two Tony wins, and both of them were for very comedic. Actually, Carlotta became more comedic in your hands, probably, than it may be. Yeah, yeah. And Hal asked me not to be so funny, but I, I couldn't help myself. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. You were right. You were right. I said, this show is very dark and very rich and very schmaltzy. Don't you think you need a little comedy in there to bounce it off of? And I'm told he never allowed any other Carlotta to be funny after me. He used to come up to me and say, you got to be, Carlotta has to be more frightened of the, of the phantom. I said, if I am more frightened of this phantom, I'm going to have my equity card removed surgically. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I had to have a, ooh, I, I thought it led itself. So there you go. You got that. And then, like you said, when you, when you won your Tony, which was very, very funny, said chandeliers have been very good to me. Oh yeah. Well, that for, yeah, for Phantom, that was for, yeah. Nice work. When I got it, I said that because there was more chandeliers because I had to ride one in that show. They got to put a chandelier in Diana. Well, they're in the palace. <laughs> they're in the palace, right? They are. There are chandeliers, very beautiful chandeliers. Well, that's it. Well, now we know where that's going to go. We know how that's going to turn out. <laughs> no, I'm very pleased to say I don't have to take a ride on those. Uh, I can't. I can't anymore. Anyway, my shoulder's shot from the other one, and I've had a knee replacement now. And you know, forget it. I'm falling apart piecemeal. You look and sound good to us. <laughs> good. Well, we we uh, the thing we end with always is we do what's called our last call questionnaire, which is based on Proust's questionnaire and kind of what they did on Inside the Actors Studio. But we adapted it a little bit for our guests, and also with a little bit of a Joe Allen spin. It's a few short ones. Quick answers off the top of your head, and then we'll have a toast. And Marvelous. Uh, the first question, what's your drink at Joe Allen or Orso? Uh, see, I would always have the little court dog. Closest thing to a Sauvignon Blanc at Orso, which is a lovely Italian wine, the name of which starts with an L. Was it, did it have an L in the word, an L in the name? Lugana at one point, yeah. That was beautiful. I mean, every now and then I'd have that gin martini with the olives, but uh, sometimes I'd have a little bourbon. And I, I kind of fluctuated, but I my go-to if I had just was sitting down to enjoy myself would be 
one of those white wines. Excellent. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I don't think I dare attempt another profession. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a bad idea. No, uh, that's Bruce's question. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I, I mean, I, I think I could, I think I could sell real estate really well. Huh. I could do that or play like, you know, pretend, you know, take the role of a person who is selling. That's probably how it would be. Um, when dining at Joe's, do you prefer the bar side or the main dining room area? I like the back of the main area and pretty much anywhere or so. The back, back areas on those big rounds with friends, with lots of friends. I feel like I've mostly served you guys at one of those round tables with yeah. just laughing it up the whole time. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Good times. Always good times. Never had a bad time there. Never had a sad. I don't remember them anyway. If I did have a sad time, it would we'd be lifting a glass to a, you know, a lost friend, but it's the best. It's the best. And yeah, I'm not using my house account anymore because it's just as easy since you take a credit card now, but I miss it. And I miss it's New York to me. It's just New York and the theater. And, and I want to be, I want to be back there as a patron, as a, as a, an actor, as a, anything to let me be. Are you a pre-theater or a, or a post-theater diner? Both, both. <laughs> and there, and there lies the it. problem. No, I, I, I'm one of the people who has to have something to eat before. And uh, it'd be kind of you know, early-ish. Um, I'd be at the end of the bar having the salad or something, but I'd be there afterward too. I'd be having, I don't know. The day I discovered the steak at, at Joe Allen and how good it was, that was a game changer. I never thought of eating a steak there, but it, man, it's good. Everything is good. Um, is there a live performance that you've seen that floored you the most? Well, being in, in the house with uh, my friend Lynn Carrier doing Sweeney Todd, that was, I mean, I was plastered to my seat. He just, the whole thing bowled me over. And I, that was when I was doing 20th Century, that, that opened. So we were able to see that. And uh that kind of did it for me. And then he became a, a really good friend. And that's, that's the best. That's the best thing is be, is the colleagues, the people you get to meet and, and learn from and, and laugh with. And yeah, that's why I do all this. As George Leandro says, I'm in it for the parties. Yeah. What's your favorite dish at the restaurants? At Orso is kind of always the, the calves liver with the, uh, with the pinions, you know, pignoli. And then, uh, and then the time that I went in there with a friend and I, and I hadn't ever really had them done this way was uh, the zucchini blossoms. When that was the way they were done there, I couldn't stop eating them. And I've tried to replicate it myself and I do it okay, but it's never been like it was there. Were they fried? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's something that's delicious. Never been there for those. Yeah. That was a, it was a brief thing on the menu. That was a before show thing that I had. I've never had anything I haven't liked. So there, there you go. It's really hard to kind of boil it down. What's your favorite curse word? Oh gosh. This is the dirty part. <laughs> oh, probably shite. Shite. Even I have nothing to do with the Irish. There's no reason I should be saying it that way. But people in the theater say it a lot. Yeah. It gets thrown around. <laughs> it does. Ba-boom ching. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, pick one word to describe how you feel about Joe Allen and Orso, the establishments. Welcoming. Always welcoming. Upstairs, downstairs, wherever I've been. I mean, when I go to L London, we're at Orso there. We're, at, we're around the corner. Joe's there. We went to Paris when Joe still owned the restaurant there. We were there. We went in L.A. We'd always go there. Toronto. Uh, yeah, it's home. That's a great one to end on. And um, 
Wow. Thank you so much. It was really great to talk to you, get to know you a little better and to go through all of this. It was, uh, it was a pleasure. Thank you. It was a pleasure for me. I had no idea I was going to get so talkative. <laughs> no, it was perfect. Hey, we love it. Talkative works for us. Um, we always close the show with a toast. So if you'd raise your glass to good friends, great nights at the theater and cocktails at table seven. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Judy. Yeah, thank you. Okay, before we hang up, Cocktails at Table 7 is produced by Jason Woodruff, Dana Mirlock, and Sean Kent, with theme music by James Rubio and logo design and artwork by Christina D'Angelo. Special thanks to the owners of Joe Allen, Orso, and Bar Centrale Restaurants.